I talk a lot about the difference between this like internal and external failure. And external failure is the idea of just crumbling because somebody says you're a loser or you fail or it's a measure of comparison, right? Like, well, I'm not living up to X's expectations. And often we let that external failure drive an internal failure, which to me is changing our internal values, adjusting to fit the world as the world wants us to be, not who we are. everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. My guest today is Dr. Rebecca Heiss. She's the author of Instinct, Rewire Your Brain with Science-Backed Solutions to Increase Productivity and Achieve Success. What I love about Rebecca Heiss is that she is a researcher on the human brain, but she's got a background in birds. And so in today's conversation, we talk about key ways to improve your performance, but we also talk about birds and life and this crazy world we're living in, in the post-pandemic environment. So if you want to hear me talk to a badass woman who is an amazing researcher, someone who understands peak performance, but is just cool to talk to, well, sit back and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Rebecca Heiss. Hey, Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm so delighted to be here with you. Well, I'm thrilled to have you here. We have a mutual friend who we will talk about at some point in the show, Nick Morgan, but he introduced me to you and to the amazing work that you've done. You've got a new book that's coming out. So before we get started with all the good stuff, why don't you tell our listeners who you are and what you're all about? So my name is Dr. Rebecca Heiss. I put the doctor there because, hey, look, every now and then we have to remember our roots and my roots are all in academia. So I have a bunch of degrees in biology. I'm a super bird nerd. So I'm an ornithologist and stress physiologist and evolutionary biologist by trade, but I don't really use those degrees in a traditional manner. So I've taken my background in biology and I've applied it to leadership. So I help individuals overcome the evolutionary limitations in their brains. Things we don't typically think about, but all of us have. So I just want to know, is there more money in birds or people? <laughs> uh, it depends. Actually, there's a lot of money in birds, believe it or not. A few years ago, Cornell's Lab of Ornithology spent, I won't tell you how much, but an absurd amount of money uh, going in to search for this rare bird that was discovered. It thought it was extinct for 20 plus years and it was just rediscovered. So we went on a whole expedition to try and find this bird. I believe it. Well, the reason why I ask is that I subscribe to Cornell's uh, magazine for ornithology and I love it. And I'm always amazed at how many uh, people are involved in the world of birds, how much money is poured into research and really what birds tell us about people. So what do you think birds tell us about people? You know, I spent my first half of my career studying birds as a model for humans, actually. So I think there's a ton to learn about human behavior from birds. In particular, I studied corvids, so crows, crows, ravens, jays, magpies to be technical, but I really focus on crows because they were the most human-like thing you've come across. I mean, they live socially in family groups. They visit the little local grocery store where multiple families mingle and gather together the compost pile, right? And then they go back to their homes and they live together in these extended families. And they are incredibly social and smart. You know, one of the stories that I tell in my book is about cooperation. When we look at the American crow, 
cooperation wins out over competition frequently because what ends up happening is these groups of crows can team up and work against their much bigger hawks, right? Like you see these little birds driving off bigger birds all the time. And so the power of cooperation, the value of family and belonging, I think there's a ton of stuff we can learn from birds. I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's funny that you mentioned crows and we'll talk about your book in a second, but I live in a wooded area and we are besieged by crows and the more oh, they yeah, I, I guess <laughs> and the more they cut down the forest to build new homes the more the crows are angrier and I truly believe they're just out for revenge right there in my neighborhood they're bothering us and they're telling us we are not happy you are cutting down our home what do you think about that one of my first big academic papers was about the difference between urban and rural crows and true to form the urban crows behave more like well, urban humans were not as healthy. They're eating like pizza and junk food and the McDonald's food out of it. They're like eating like us. And so they're not as healthy. They're actually more stressed out. They have higher levels of cortisol. And so I think they're kind of reacting the same as us and they say like, boom, 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 boom. We gotta go here, we gotta do that. Hey, get out of my way. No, you get out of the way. We don't take our time, slow down. Life in the country's a little slower. So I think that observation is a keen one of yours, yeah. We have definitely disrupted them. Well, you know, all of humanity is disrupted right now, which is why I think your book is so timely. So tell us a little bit about the work you're doing today, post-Crow, and what it means for the modern leader. I'm doing a lot of work on awareness today and looking at some of the stories that hold us back from becoming aware. Because as we all know, you know, the best leaders, one of the best indicators of a good leader is that they're self-aware. They know what they don't know, or they know what their weaknesses are. We know that self-aware leaders have more profitable companies. They have better communication. They have better relationships. They come up with more creative and confident decisions. There's so much science behind being a self-aware leader. And so I wanted to find a better way to make people more aware of who they are, how the world sees them. We rate our Uber drivers and our meals. We rate everything, but we have no real good way of getting a clean view of how the world sees us. So that's some of the work I've been doing recently. It's really interesting because when we talk about self-awareness, it goes a couple of ways. There's the person who is in denial about their abilities, both positively, negatively. They either overestimate and over-index on themselves, or they have imposter syndrome, or there's the person who doesn't even want to go there. They're the selfless leader, right? They're focused on other people and they're not thinking about themselves. So tell us a little bit about the differentiation between self-awareness and what it truly means to know oneself. When I first started developing IQity, which is this way to measure our self-awareness, I rated myself as being really funny. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty funny individual. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to give myself a seven out of 10. Ah, no, I'm making an eight. What the heck? And I send it to my family and immediately I get back twos. Now, Lori, I did the thing that most leaders do when we get that difficult information. I'm like, no, 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 they, they must have had a bad day. They don't really know me. And I caught myself in this moment kind of pushing my walls of defense up because it was such a scary thing to admit. Oh, wow. There's a gap between how I see myself and how the world sees me, or at least how this group sees me. Real true self-awareness is sitting with that discomfort and saying, that's okay. I don't have to be an eight. I don't have to be a 10. I don't have to be a six on all of these traits. But it's really important that I know how I present so that I'm not showing up with humor to a family challenge. I can show up with an actual strength of mine. That's so interesting because I wonder if the gap always matters. Like there are people out there who may not present well to certain audiences or present differently than they think they do. And they push through 
or they don't care. I think about my own journey being this kind of gritty, punk rock, working class kid, working in human resources. I knew how talented I was, even when it wasn't appreciated by the organization. So talk to me a little bit about the appropriateness, because you're right. We ask people all the time to weigh in. And when there's a gap, we ask them to sit with that gap, right, and reflect on it. But what if those people are wrong? I think that happens more frequently than we consider, because in order to truly be a transformative leader, we're constantly pushing the boundaries, right? You describe yourself as being this punk rocker and like, I know I'm talented. Other people might not see it yet, but I know this. So I think there's a level at which we can push ourselves and push those around us so that we're all growing together in a way that doesn't rub negatively. So more a curiosity in that moment rather than having to push back and say, no, 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 you're wrong. I'm right. Look how talented I am, right? Instead, it's more a, well, wait a second. What if we consider, wouldn't it be interesting if, let's just say I am funny. How would that play out? Like maybe is it perhaps that you just don't have a sense of humor? Now that's dangerous, right? Because now I'm pointing fingers and I'm blaming. But there's a question to be raised there where you could invite people in and say, huh, this is really interesting. So I've had this observation about myself that I'm not funny. Can you help me understand that better? And what that does is it actually teases apart, well, maybe they're actually wrong about this. Maybe I'm at the cutting edge of humor and they just haven't caught up yet. Or maybe they're your dumb family who will never find you funny, right? Like I think about my own siblings. They don't think anything I have to say is funny. And I think I'm hysterical. And they remind me all the time, Lori, this is terrible, you know? So I think sometimes the closer you are to someone and the more you value what they have to say, sometimes they are in their own world or they see you through a different lens that is difficult to measure. So I'm interested in that tension. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. But I'll push back a little bit and say, yes, And if we want to be effective with that group, we have to step fully into their truth first. If you don't first acknowledge, okay, yes, I'm not funny to you. Yeah, step fully into that before you add your truth of, and I'm perfect. Did you hear that last joke? That's, that's pretty good. We don't end up having a conversation that influences anybody to any particular space. So I think it's important to sit with that and say, okay, yes. And then if this is important, if I want to grow in this, then okay, here's how I can do it. That's certainly a more mature way of looking at self-awareness. You know, there is, I think, part of me that is naturally defensive in my own way of operating in the world where because I've had to push for so long, I don't want to listen to other people's points of view. But you're right. In order to be effective, you have to meet people where they are. And so often I think there's some tension, especially with some of the software founders. In fact, you may have felt this in your own journey as an entrepreneur where the world is telling you one thing and you just have to believe in yourself, right? It's so important to believe in who you are and what you want to deliver to the world. You want to be of service, no matter if people are telling you, we don't need your product. We don't need your ideas. You're like, yes, you You do. do. So yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's just a weird place to be. I appreciate that. And I think if we don't, what we end up doing is we have an internal failure. So I talk a lot about the difference between this like internal and external failure. And external failure is the idea of just crumbling because somebody says you're a loser or you fail or it's a measure of comparison, right? Like, well, I'm not living up to X's expectations. And often we let that external failure drive an internal failure, which to me is changing our internal values, adjusting to fit the world as the world wants us to be, not who we are. And that's the big difference, right? Like if I am funny, but the world doesn't get it, I can't adjust to my humor for the world to get it. That's not the right approach. That's an internal failure. Um, I've tried that a lot of times, you know, and I, I think, you know, as a professional speaker, I'm supposed to have a certain look. 
I'm not a super girly person. I don't put on a lot of makeup. And there's a part of me that's really wanting to fight that. I'm like, ah, read my post. You don't have to see me glammed up. So there's this tension constantly between what the world wants of us and who we are. And I think that true awareness is finding a good balance between the two. Hey everybody, Lori here to talk about my experiences as a LinkedIn learning instructor. Last summer, I had this cool opportunity from LinkedIn Learning to record two courses. They gave me an opportunity to teach anything I wanted to teach. And I said, okay, I have two ideas. The first is on self-leadership, which is the art and science of individual accountability. And the second course I want to teach is on proactively managing conflict as an employee. When you feel like you have no power and you're constantly fighting with a boss, what do you do? Well, I've taught a course on that. So because I went through this awesome and amazing LinkedIn experience, they gave me a free code that I can give to you. If you want to try LinkedIn Learning Out for 30 days free, no obligation to see my courses on proactively managing conflict or self-leadership or anybody else's courses, head on over to bit.ly forward slash LinkedIn PRHR. That's bit.ly forward slash LinkedIn PRHR, all one word, all lowercase, to get 30 days of LinkedIn Learning on me, no strings attached, so you can bet on yourself and win. We do have an audience filled with human resources practitioners who have ideas on diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging, compensation, benefits, and they've pushed, they've brought these ideas to an organization, they know their own worth, and yet they hear back from executives and leaders, not now, not ever, and by the way, go away and go do payroll, you know? So I feel for them, and it's hard not to internalize that message consistently. So tell me a little bit about your work with individuals who do internalize these negative messages and how do you make sure that you get back to your own inner truth? I think it's so important, especially in the context of what we've just been talking about, to recognize that look, there are systems in place and it is so hard sometimes to see the systems that we operate from because it's the water that we've always swum in. David Foster Wallace tells the story that I'll tell really quickly about two young fish swimming in the water, right? And an older fish swims by and kind of tips his fin at the two young fish and says, hey boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim along for a little while longer and finally one turns to the other and is like, dude, what's water? So when we're completely surrounded by that, and that's the environment that we live in, it's hard for people that have swum in that water and the water's not toxic to them to feel the toxicity, right? Because it's impossible to recognize. So you're not crazy. Those automatic negative thoughts of like, I've been fighting the system, I've been fighting the system, it's exhausting. It's a headwind when the people that are swimming through that water easily have a tailwind and they simply can't feel it. So one of the things that I work a lot on is helping people understand these ants, these like swarming thoughts. So I call them ants for a reason. It's an acronym, right? Automatic negative thoughts. And automatic negative thoughts were really useful for the ancestral brain that we're stuck with. It's the thoughts that kept us alive. Well, maybe I'm a failure. I shouldn't challenge this because the system will beat me down. Maybe I should just keep quiet because this feels a little bit dangerous. Those are thoughts that, again, for the ancestral environment, which was much more dangerous and sparse and scary, they were good thoughts to have. But today, no, 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 right? These thoughts are pervasive. They're swarming us constantly. And we've got to start smushing them. So unfortunately, we know that those automatic negative thoughts are not easy to smush. So I invite people to replace them with something I call pets. 
Another acronym. I know it's business. We no, love it's all acronyms, right. Aren't we? I, you know, we're so, good here. <laughs> so pets are practiced enlightened thoughts. This is what we fill our brain with after we've smushed those ants. So an ant of like, I'm a failure. Well, pause. Wait a second. Did you fail relative to somebody else? Then that's external. Did you fail yourself? Okay, let's talk about that because this isn't a failure. This is an opportunity for growth. I'm just not ready yet. So the pet that replaces the I'm a failure is not ready yet. What am I going to do to prepare? Or I'm not worthy. I'm not valuable. I just can't get this. Wait a second. Time for whom? Who are you trying to be worthy or valuable or enough for? If we're not enough or valuable or worthy as we are for ourselves first, we can't change the system. I mean, as dorky as it sounds, as like 1990s SNL, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, it works. And those kind of positive mantras, those reinforcements actually literally change the connections in our brain. Well, it's really good stuff. And I wonder if you could share another aspect of your book, another story, another moment that you think is really important for people to hear. The most important chapter for me is the sex chapter. And it's chapter number two. And in it, I talk about the evolutionary underpinnings of the stress response. And the ones we usually talk about are fight and flight. And the one we always forget about is freeze. And again, it's part of the system is why we forget about the freeze response because it wasn't until the late 1990s that we even started studying women in stress labs. And so fight and flight is a typical male response to stress. And generally speaking here, I'm really generalizing, but males in general tend to be physically stronger, tend to be physically faster. So they can typically fight or escape a predator or a threat. For women, we have a completely different response and it's known as the freeze response. Sometimes the freeze and appease or tend and mend. So what we do is we freeze. We often smile along with that because this is a sign of submission. It's basically saying, everything's cool. Don't worry. I'm not a threat. All is well here. And unfortunately, what that does, especially in workplace situations, when we're talking about sexual harassment, and a woman is approached and she's hit on or, or there's an uncomfortable situation, often the first response is this freeze and smile. And by no fault, and again, I'm generalizing again, I know sexual harassment happens to both genders, but roll with me on this one, if you will. In this heteronormative example, if the male is pursuing the female, the signal that he gets then is a smile, which in male brains, male brains are primed for sexual overperception, which means they literally think girls are into them a lot more than they are. All right. And it's not their fault. All right. I'm not trying to blame or shame any man out there. Oh, I'm going to blame or shame a few. Come on now. Come on, Rebecca. <laughs> no, no, no. That's that another is, story. That is literally, literally, well, there's a few we can certainly, but your brains are literally wired for that because it was a lot more dangerous for you to miss a potential mating opportunity than it would be for you to push a girl a little too far in the evolutionary past. So now we have the situation where a woman is frozen, she's smiling, and that signal is read completely incorrectly by the male counterpart. And this is just not discussed enough. I cannot get on enough stages. I cannot push this book into enough hands of people to get this message heard. And I can talk about a bazillion personal experiences too, but this is, um, it's a personal one for me. It's, it's a painful one. Yeah, absolutely. I can think of a hundred examples in my own life where I'm like, why did I smile? Why did I do that? Right? So I feel that in my bones. I feel that in my face. I guess the question becomes, how do you train to make people aware? And how do you get somebody self-aware enough, especially a dude to go, oh no, she's not into me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is an I mean, evolutionary response. Right. <laughs> she's not hot for me. That Most dudes are not that self-aware. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great, great question. I think the first thing is awareness. It always starts with awareness, right? And so 
so teaching about the freeze response. And the problem that I see is that most sexual harassment training, most sexual assault training is given to women. That's problematic because while I, I don't want to get the statistic wrong, but it is somewhere in the 80% is geared for women. Here's what you need to do. Well, the problem is when she's in that hot state, that stress state, you actually physiologically cannot control that response. So it just happens. Now, there is something called stress inoculation, where you can start to experience a stress response in a safe environment, and you can begin to train your brain to react differently. But that takes a ton of training and practice and ongoing work. I think it's worth it. I do it myself. However, I think the more important and more immediate thing that we can all do is empower men to recognize so that would-be perpetrators, not intentional perpetrators even sometimes, can recognize, oh, oh, okay, wait, this may be what I think it is, or it may be something else entirely. And in that moment, walk away. Give it a day, give it two days, give it space, because at the end of the day, if she's interested, she will come after you, I promise. And then finally, the last thing I'll say to this is please be intentional about being the bystander. If you see something, you don't have to go up and challenge the perpetrator, right? You don't have to go up and say, hey, get out of here, because that can create a dangerous, aggressive interaction. It's really simple, though, to walk up and say, excuse me, Lori, I I'm sorry, I really need you right now in my office. Can I just steal you for a second? And if you do that, two things happen. One, either Lori's like, uh, what's going on? Everything was fine. Oh, okay, great. No problem. Right back to life as normal. Or alternatively, Lori's given space and time and is actually safe now because of that single five second interaction. So Oh boy, yeah. Rebecca, she needed it at multiple <laughs> times in her career. Where were you pulling me out? Oh my God. I could have used you too. I think the more women can help other women out here and male advocates, well, all genders. I don't mean to be limiting here. Absolutely. Well, I'm so grateful for this chat on self-awareness. I'm excited to get your book into the hands of all the punk rock HR listeners. Like it's just a, such a fun time for you and for your career. So remind us again about the book and tell us a little bit about your company as we wrap up the conversation. Absolutely. So the book is called Instinct. It is rewire your brain with science-backed solutions to increase productivity and achieve success. It is seven instincts that we have that served us really well in the ancestral past. So they're buried into our brain, but today are preventing us from fully living and being productive and happy and successful. So uh, I give tips and techniques to, and really whole systems to override those instincts so that we can all be happier and healthier together. And the app. Yeah. So the app is all based on self-awareness. It's really a Yelp for you. It's ongoing leadership training resources to grow in the areas where you find you have gaps if that's important to you, if you want to become more of X, Y, or Z. And it's called Iquity. It's downloadable from both of the app stores. And I'm strongly encouraging anybody to give it a shot. It's terrifying and really fun. Well, we will have links to all of that in the show notes. And just a final note, you know, one of the really beautiful things about the world of COVID is that it's pushing us to network in different ways. And I've been connecting with my friend, Nick Morgan regularly, who's introducing me to cool people. So I'm not just sitting in my home, staring at the computer screen. So I invited him to introduce me to anybody he thought would be appropriate. And he picked you, Rebecca. So you're a- I'm so honored. Yeah, Nick is just an amazing leader, a mentor in my life. And I know you feel the same way. I was going to say, can we do a whole episode on Nick Morgan? Because that man, oh, he's one of the best people that I know, I, truly. Well, and I'm so grateful for him. So thanks again for being a guest today on Punk Rock HR. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much, Lori. 
Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show today. For more information, including show notes and links, you can head on over to punkrockhr.com. And if you like what you heard today, head on over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. Now, that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR.